Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And recently I paid a visit to Polly's Island, which is a small island that sits off the coast of South Carolina's low country. And I realized that this is the home of a very famous ghost story, which I'm going to tell you about very shortly. And also that this state is replete with such interesting and fascinating ghost stories. Here's a few of them. The Gray Man first materialized before the storm of 1822. Even though the rice planters who settled the island knew they'd built in the path of hurricanes roaring up the coast from the Caribbean, the likelihood of savage storms striking the island seemed remote. The daughter of one planter was spending a summer on the island awaiting the arrival of her fiancé, who had been abroad for several years. He returned safely to Polly's, but in taking a shortcut through a bog, his horse stumbled and fell, quicksand devoured man and beast. The grief-stricken girl walked the beach day and night. One windy day she saw a man in gray coming toward her. Recognizing her dead lover, she ran to him with arms outstretched. But before she reached him, he was swept into the sea. Her father, upon hearing of the incident, was convinced his daughter was suffering a mental breakdown and rushed her to a Charleston hospital. She was pronounced in excellent health. The next day, a hurricane hit the island and raged for two days. Stunned survivors mourned the dead, then cleaned up the litter and rebuilt their homes. In time, the island of oleander and oak trees became again an oasis of peace and beauty. So the island remained for 71 years. And during all that time, the story of the mysterious man on the beach was told and retold. A legend had been born. The Gray Man, it is said, would always come to warn the islanders of an approaching storm. One day in 1893, an odd-looking man appeared at the door of a French family named La Chicotte. The visitor was dressed in gray from head to foot. He said nothing but shuffled his feet and turned away. The La Chicots fled their home immediately. Others were less fortunate. The day had begun as sunny and pleasant with a breeze stirring the curtains at open windows turned sullen. The sky darkened while at the same time the sea appeared to be on fire. The tide never ran out. It came thundering up over the sands until the entire beach had vanished. Trees snapped their limbs, exploding like firecrackers. Birds beat their wings helplessly, seeking sanctuary from the roar of winds and water. Whole families died, perhaps none more pathetically than members of the Flag family were vacationing at their summer homes on Magnolia Beach, now Huntington Beach State Park north of Polly's Island. When the sea washed under the doors of the cottages, young Dr. J. Ward Flagg and his parents climbed as high as they could into a beech cedar tree. The surf churned over them. Old Mrs. Flagg was the first to go on a wave 40 feet high. Her husband, seeing her vanish, let go his grip and went after her. When the storm abated, the sea turned back and the sun came out. Rescuers reaching young Dr. Flagg, or Wardy, as they called him, had to pry loose every one of his fingers from a bow of the tree. A small niece and a servant escaped death with him, but the doctor's brother, the brother's wife, and five children all lost their lives. A baby's shoe and undergarment swung from a barren treetop. A woman's shoe, unbuttoned to the last button, stuck up in the sand like a hideous marker. Clothing, splintered furniture, and shards of glass that had once been cottage windows littered the beach. Day and night, survivors searched for bodies. 
a wagon loaded with empty coffins rumbled across the strand, and whenever a body was found, it was placed in a coffin and taken to the porch of a neighboring church. Ministers were kept busy praying for the dying and conducting funerals for the dead. The water, rising a foot higher than hazel, was a result of what is said to be the worst storm in South Carolina history. Dr. Flagg never fully recovered from the tragedy. He locked himself inside the house on land that is now part of Brook Green Gardens, and the seasons passed without his knowledge. With windows shades lowered, he saw neither sunshine nor rain. Friends tried to encourage him to leave the cottage, but he refused. Dr. Flagg's loyal servant, Anthony Doctor, who had survived the storm with him, kept house for him. Finally, the doctor did leave his house. There was no one else to tend to the sick of the area. He also served as postmaster, but whenever he could, he paced the beach, gazing out to sea and stooping to pick up articles washed in on the tide. He told Anthony that as he walked the sands, his mother, father, and the rest of his relatives spoke to him. Their voices brought him solace. Dr. Flagg passed away at the age of 70 on May 9, 1938 and the short obit detailing his death described him as a prominent Georgetown County physician. It was noted that Dr. Flagg had lived alone since 1893 when a tidal wave which swept Magnolia Beach took the lives of his parents and several other kinsmen. It is said that even today, those persons keen of eye and ear may see the misty forms of the flags and hear the pitiful cries and all of the Coast Guard and the news weather station alerts residents of incoming storms, the gray man of Polly's Island still makes his rounds, shuffling from cottage to cottage to deliver his warning. Is he the lover who was killed, or just a nameless shipwrecked sailor? Does it really matter? Unlucky in Love The following story is about Alice. Alice Boleyn Flagg. She was the aunt of Dr. J. Ward Flagg, who you just heard his story about how many of his family perished that day in 1893. But this story begins many, many years before that. It's 1848, and Alice, her brother, whose name was Dr. Allard Flagg, and their widowed mother moved into the hermitage at Murals Inlet, Alice loved the plantation house, with its imposing white pillars, wide brick steps, and large rooms, which were light and airy. The building of imperishable pitch pine had taken four years to build. At this time, Alice was just a young teenager, maybe 14 or 15 years old. But Alice's happiness would be short-lived because she fell in love with the wrong person. She fell in love with a common laborer. The news devastated Mrs. Flagg, ever conscious of the family's place in South Carolina aristocracy. She warned her daughter, Child, he is beneath our station. He will disgrace our family name and bring you nothing but unhappiness. Her voice was hard and sharp. Alice turned to her brother. You heard her, said Dr. Allard. As everyone called him, he's nothing but a common laborer. He lit his pipe and stared at his sister above the flame of the match. The muscles of his face tightened. Mother and I forbid you to see him. 
But Alice did see him, many times in a grove of oak trees, far from the house. It became their secret trysting place. One afternoon, Alice told her lover to come to the house the next day. She'd be alone. Her mother would be in Charleston and her brother would be attending several critically ill patients. He came, a tall, slim man with erect bearing and a kindly, reassuring face. From his pocket, he brought forth a tiny box, took out the diamond ring and slipped it on her finger. The gem caught the light reflecting in its long silver rays. Alice and her lover embraced. At that moment, Dr. Allard walked into the room. Get out, he roared. Alice watched her lover stride from the room, but made no attempt to follow him. Her brother drew near and stood silently before his sister. Then he pulled the ring from her finger. Alice, he said in a voice now calm and composed, you will break your mother's heart and mine too if you marry that man. He paused and turned the ring in his fingers. But he has given you this ring. It is not mine to dispose of. If you'll wear it on a ribbon concealed in the neck of your dress, mother will never know. Alice nodded and fought back the tears. Early one morning, two weeks later, Mrs. Flagg discovered the ring on the chest in her daughter's bedroom. She shook Alice awake and demanded an explanation. When none was forthcoming, she screamed invectives at both Alice and the absent lover. Alice pulled the bedclothes high up under her chin. She felt sick. Then the door banged open and Dr. Allard entered the room. He noticed the ring on the chest. Mother, you've had a restless night, he began. Come along now and let me give you a sedative. She went willingly, supported by her son's strong arms. As her footsteps receded down the hallway, Alice knew that she could no longer remain in the house. She would be sent away to a boarding school in Charleston. Her mother and her brother had discussed that possibility at one time. Alice buried her face in her pillow and wept. Dr. Allard drove his sister to Charleston, the carriage jouncing over broken sections of roadway and the steamer trunk rattling in the rear. The trip, a distance of about 80 miles, took four days. At first, Alice was excited by the sights and sounds of the city. King Street and Meeting Street were filled with the hustle and banter of shoppers and the clatter of horses' hooves on the pavement. Every variety lined the streets, and after dark, the gaslights shone softly on the leaves. But the novelty of these distractions soon paled. Alice could not concentrate on her schoolwork. Although she tried to complete the daily assignments, her heart was elsewhere. She overslept her classes. Her new friends, noting her listlessness, tried to help her, unsuccessfully. But by the time spring came, Alice's spirit soared. The school term would soon end, and she could return to her beloved. At the May Ball, Alice, resplendent in a white gown, glided across the floor with one young man after another from Charleston's aristocracy. Her eyes shone brilliantly, and a high color came into her cheeks. But she would not remember this night. Early the next morning, Dr. Flagg was notified to come and take his sister home. She had become critically ill. Allard Flagg set out immediately. At the school, he wrapped his sister in blankets and placed her in the carriage. A friend had packed the gown. Upon reaching the hermitage, Alice was put to bed immediately. Typhoid fever had struck, as it did every spring in the low country. The physician could only try to keep his sister as comfortable as possible during her remaining hours. Alice soon realized that a ring was not on her finger and cried out for it. Legend has it that her brother had thrown it into a creek on the way home. 
A sympathetic cousin soon appeared with a ring, but Alice, even in her delirium, knew it wasn't hers and threw it on the floor. Two days later, she lapsed into a coma and died. Alice's mother was not with her dying daughter. Like many other residents of the swampy coastal area, she spent the months of May through September in the mountains to escape the deadly fevers so prevalent during the warm weather. Unwilling to call his mother home, Dr. Allard had his sister dressed in her ball gown and the coffin lowered into a temporary grave on the plantation. Later, in the presence of the grief-stricken family, the body was permanently buried in the flag family plot in All Saints Waccamaw Episcopal Cemetery, three miles west of Polly's Island. But Alice does not rest easily. When the moon is full and a mist rises over the fields of the low country, she returns to the home she loved. Some say she still searches for her lost engagement ring. So many have reported seeing Alice that she may be the most authenticated ghost of the Grand Strand. She always appears in her beautiful ball gown. Since 1910, the Wilcox family has owned the antebellum home. Clark Wilcox and his wife Lillian, both now deceased, never saw Alice, but one member of the family saw the lovely apparition many years ago. During Clark Wilcox's childhood, his mother's sister, Aunt Lolly, often visited with her only sister's family. Early one morning, Aunt Lolly, now seated at the vanity brushing her hair, suddenly in the mirror she saw the bedroom door open and a young girl enter the room. When the girl did not speak, Aunt Lolly swung round. No one was there. Hairbrush in hand and screaming, the woman flew down the stairs. She never slept in that room again. Through the years, a number of superstitions have arisen about Alice. Young people say that if you walk 13 times backward around the grave, you can commune with her spirit. It's said that once a young woman, walking in the opposite direction, saw her own ring fly off her finger. Friends spend most of the day trying to find it. Red roses or camellias often appear on Alice's tombstone. No one knows who brings the flowers, but some believe that the ghost of her lover has something to do with it. In 1989, when Hurricane Hugo roared towards South Carolina, almost if an apology for all the family that Alice had lost in that tidal wave of 1893, the water only reached the front porch of the hermitage and did not enter the house, which suffered relatively minor damage from fallen trees. The Haunting of Hagley Landing Except for a few touristy shops, paved roads, and subdivisions, Polly's Island still looks much the same as it did centuries ago. Hegley Estates, one of the island's most upscale residential communities, was developed on the site of a large antebellum farm known as Hagley Plantation. It is difficult to believe now, but in 1918, this area was the site of one of the most dramatic ghostly encounters in the entire southeast. Although another version of the story of the haunting of Hagley Landing exists, the most dramatic is the interview given to WPA Supervisor C.S. Murray by one of the primary witnesses, a cabinet maker named Eugene F. LaBruce from Georgetown, South Carolina. The summer of 1918, LaBruce drove passengers between Polly's Island and Hagley Landing on the Waccamaw. As a rule, he made the trip several times a day. Occasionally, a party of young people who were working in Georgetown would go for a drive after the ferry had made its last trip and he would meet them at Hagley Landing at 11 p.m. One night, LaBruce reached the landing at 10.45, so he decided to lie down on a piece of canvas and rest a bit before the boat arrived at 11. 
It was a clear moonlit night. Labrus became so comfortable that he quickly fell asleep and had a dream so vivid that he still remembered it years later. I was standing with a crowd of people in front of a little church near the wharf. A wedding was in progress, and it seemed that we were waiting for the bride and groom to emerge from the front door. Everyone was dressed in clothing typical of the Civil War period, and I gathered the impression that peace had just been declared. After a short while, the bridal party appeared on the church porch. I looked at the newly married couple standing there in the moonlight, and noticed that the bride was a striking brunette, and the groom a handsome, finely proportioned blonde. Both were of the landed gentry class, I imagined. As the crowd made a rush for the porch, a man, dressed in a Confederate uniform, dashed up the clearing astride a horse that had evidently been running at top speed for hours. The figure dismounted and ran towards the place where the bride and groom were standing. When he reached the couple, the bride uttered a little cry and said, It is too late. I have just married the other man. The soldier stood frozen in his tracks and listened like a man in a trance, while the woman explained that she had waited three years and, believing that he had been killed in battle, had finally consented to marry one of her former beaux. The soldier then turned to the groom and said without show emotion, Well, I will fade out of the picture. It is the best solution. And he started to leave. Then the groom cried, No, if anyone must fade from the picture, I will be that one. The soldier made for the wharf, followed by the bride and groom, and when he had reached the end of the pier, jumped overboard and disappeared. Without a second's hesitation, the woman in white followed him, and then the groom. Everyone was in turmoil. Boats were launched, strong swimmers discarded their clothing and plunged into the water, and a score of men were calling orders in rapid succession. A mighty gale was blowing from the west, lashing the river into foamy waves, which broke against the muddy bank with a resounding roar. The search for the bodies was still underway when I awoke shivering with excitement. I rubbed my eyes and looked about me. The church had disappeared and the crowd of men and women had vanished. I could scarcely believe that I had been dreaming, for every detail the harrowing scene was stamped on my brain. Suddenly I became aware I, I was not alone on the wharf. For some reason I did not feel inclined to investigate, but something impelled me to turn my head. Standing a few feet away from my improvised bed, I saw two figures. I realized with a start that they were dressed like the people in my dream, and that the woman closely resembled the bride and the man resembled the groom. This is nonsense, I told myself. The boat must have come and gone, and the other people are somewhere around. Those two are trying to play a trick on me. So I said most politely, Will you tell me who you are? If you are waiting to go to Polly's, I have the automobile ready. They did not answer my greetings, so I tried again. Will you tell me who you are? My automobile is waiting. Neither the man or woman replied, but turned around and strolled off the dock. This made me angry, and I called out, You had better stop this foolishness and tell me who you are. I will find out soon enough at any rate. But the couple kept walking slowly away from me and seemed to be whispering to each other. Then I became really frightened and started to imagine all sorts of weird things. Could I have been carried back through the years to the time of the Civil War by some mysterious force? Or had I passed from this world when I fell asleep? I tried to recall the history of the region but could not remember ever hearing about a church at Hagley's or recall reading of such an incident or hearing a similar story. 
Why then should I have this dream? The Bruce was still trying to answer these questions to this satisfaction when the couple completely disappeared right in front of his eyes. He was standing frozen on the spot when the chugging of a motor woke him from his reverie. The ferry docked and a young man and woman stepped ashore, relieved that LaBruce had not given up on them and returned to the island. He was still thinking about his strange vision while he drove them through the sandy roadbed. Later on in the season, on another moonlit night, LaBruce returned to Hagley Landing to meet a special boat that was not due until midnight or later. The three men and three women who climbed into LaBruce's car were looking forward to a moonlight ride through the scented woods and a refreshing swim in the surf. LaBruce was traveling about 20 miles an hour along the narrow road lined with gnarled oaks when he saw two figures step out into the road directly in front of the car. Realizing that there was no clearance on either side of the road, LaBruce came to an abrupt stop, throwing his passengers violently against one another. Ignoring the complaints of his passengers, LaBruce watched transfixed figures slowly walking arm in arm along the road. He recognized them as the brunette bride and the handsome groom of his dream. The couple spoke quietly to each other, completely oblivious to the car. The Bruce took his eyes off the road for just a second, and when he looked again, the couple had disappeared. The Bruce once again turned his attention to his passengers. He explained that he had come to a sudden stop to throw the boys and their girlfriends together so that they could become better acquainted. Then he accelerated the engine to 40 miles an hour and headed for the beach. When they reached the beach, everyone left the car except the girl who had been sitting beside him. She told her friends to run along because she had something to say to Eugene. The girl turned to me. Eugene, I want you to tell me why you stopped the car so suddenly by the ferry landing. Oh, I just wanted to have a little fun, I replied. I thought it best to stick to my original story. You need to tell me that. I know why you stopped. My heart was beating faster and faster. Perhaps this young woman had seen the same figures. In this case. Why, nothing was the matter with my mind and probably two real ghosts had appeared. But I would not give myself away. I told you why I stopped. Why don't you believe me, I countered. Because, and she averted her eyes, you know you saw a man and a woman in the road. I did not see anyone, I said in what I thought was an indifferent tone. You can't fool me, Eugene. We both saw those people. If we did, no one else in the automobile saw them, I asserted. That makes no difference. I saw them, and you did too. Or you would have never slammed down the brakes like you did. There was no use pretending any longer. Yes, I saw them, I said evenly, and I barely missed killing them at that. Instead of telling the girl that he had dreamed about the two spectral figures just a few weeks earlier... LaBruce pretended that he had never seen the man and woman before. Although he never saw the ghosts again, LaBruce firmly believed that they still strolled the wooded paths around Hagley Landing on bright, moonlit nights. Nothing remains of Hagley Plantation except for huge oak trees hundreds of years old and abandoned rice fields by the river. After the Civil War, the plantation chapel was dismantled. The lumber and oak stalls were donated to the Prince Frederick P.D. Episcopal Church and the stained glass windows were given to the Prince George Winya Episcopal Church in Georgetown. In fact, the memory of Hagley Plantation is kept alive primarily because of the events of 1918. To this day, some people report sightings of the ghostly trio along Hagley Boulevard and in the woods around Hagley Landing. This is the story of the Ghost of the Crab Boy as told 
by someone who lived in the area. When I was a child, we lived in a big wooden house right on the seashore at Merle's Inlet. Sometimes, early in the morning, we would hear faint but urgent screams coming over and over from far down the creek toward Drunken Jack Island, behind what is now Huntington Beach. My mother, who didn't stand for any such nonsense, always said it was just a peacock calling from a distant farmyard. But the Gullah woman who helped my mother in the kitchen told us children that it was the ghost of Crab Boy crying for help. They called such spirits of children who had died unnatural death drolls. The saltwater creeks and marshes between sandy barrier islands like Huntington Beach and the mainland seashore are full of sea life. This sea life becomes delicious seafood for those who know how to catch it. Oysters, blue crabs, and clams all make delicious eating, but the greatest delicacy of the marsh is the stone crab with sweet juicy meat in its giant claw. Catching stone crabs requires a very different technique than catching blue crabs, however. Stone crabs do not swim in and out with the tide. They live deep in burrows in the mud banks along the creeks that are only exposed at low tide. Catching a stone crab requires a highly skilled technique and a lot of courage. That giant claw that is so delicious to eat on can crush a finger with little effort. The best way to catch a stone crab is to wait for low tide, then walk along the edge of the creek looking for stone crab burrows. When you see one which is just about as big, round as your fist, you slowly slide your hand and arm way into it until you feel the crab with your fingers. Then you gently grab the crab just the right way and slip it out of the burrow and into your bucket. If the crab senses danger, it will wedge itself in its hole with its leg and shell and attack with that giant claw. Now, this method has been carefully explained to me. Don't you understand? I would never try it myself. Not after growing up hearing stories of Crab Boy. No one ever seemed to know what Crab Boy's real name was. He wasn't from around here. He came down to stay with his relatives that lived here at Merle's Inlet, near the shore behind Drunken Jack Island, on land that is not part of Brook Green Gardens. Crab Boy's relatives took him along as they gathered their bounty from the creeks. He learned to cast a shrimp net and to gather oysters carefully so as not to cut himself on their razor-sharp shells. His uncles warned him repeatedly, however, never to try to catch stone crabs the way they did until he was much older. Did he listen? Of course not. One day when the tide was just past its low point, Crab Boy was exploring the maze of creeks by himself when he saw a perfect stone crab hole. He had seen his uncles pull crabs out so easily that he was sure he could do it too. He crouched down to the thick dark mud surrounding the hole and slowly reached in further and further until nearly his whole arm was extended into the burrow. Finally, his fingers touched the hard, sharp creature. As he tried to slide his hand under the shell, the crab grabbed his finger with its crushing grip. The boy screamed in pain and tried to yank his arm out of the hole. It wouldn't budge. The crab had wedged itself solidly in the burrow and would not release its grip on the boy's finger. Crab boy screamed louder and louder for help. His relatives heard his cries and began searching for him. But in the maze of creeks and marshes, his cries seemed to come from every direction. His frantic relatives searched and searched until the rising tide still his cries. They found Crab Boy's lifeless body at the next low tide, his arms still trapped in the stone crab burrow. As a child, I always wondered how they ever got his arm out so they could bury Crab Boy. 
Nobody ever answered that question for me. But whenever we children went out into the marsh, they always reminded us to leave stone crabs alone. And whenever we heard the droll calling from down toward drunken Jack Island, they told us the story of Crab Boy. The Dare at St. Philip's Churchyard Eleven-year-old Sally lived in the spacious house nestled between St. Philip's and the Huguenot places of worship on Church Street in the very late 19th century. A pretty popular and engaging girl, she was also blessed with a large intellect for someone so young. Seemingly, her only flaw was a stubborn refusal to concede any point when she entered a discussion. A precocious child, she loved to debate and argue with her large group of friends. Even her teachers sometimes found this hard-headed tendency of Sally's to be exhausting. Her immense ego made her unwilling to admit defeat on any contestable topic. One cool October night, after a heavy rain, she was entertaining a group of classmates when their after-dinner discussion turned to ghosts, specifically ones haunting the nearby St. Philip's churchyard. Several in the group believed in specters. One boy in particular, Thomas, was insistent that he had seen the ghost of Boney in the nearby cemetery. Sally made a rude noise through plumped lips, voicing her opinion on the subject. Anyone who believes in ghosts is a fool, and anyone who says they've seen a ghost is a liar, Sally spat out. The boy persisted. I did see Boney lounging on a tombstone. I'll bet you're afraid to go down and see him. Old Boney Man will get you. I am not afraid, because there is nothing to fear, and I'll walk through any cemetery, day or night, Sally said defiantly. Very soon the dare had been issued. Sally was challenged to take a walking stick alone and with no lantern into the cemetery. She was instructed to lay the cane on a tomb in the back corner of the cemetery to prove that she had actually gone to the stone in question. Her friends would venture into the cemetery the next morning to verify whether she had actually done so. Within a few moments, Sally departed the bright, joyous party and found herself walking through the wrought iron gates to the burial ground, clutching a cane in the deepening gloom. She had to walk all the way around the church, from the right-hand entrance on Church Street to the left-hand rear corner of the burial ground. Her lovely gown trailed behind her, getting muddier and muddier with each puddle she encountered. There's no such thing as ghosts or goblins, she told herself, as she passed the first row of tombstones. Besides, Boney had been a good person who was rewarded for saving the church. Boney was a slave, who close to a hundred years previously had famously saved the church from going up in flames during the Great Fire of 1796. It had been Boney, despite his fear of heights, who had valiantly climbed the roof and swatted burning embers away from the church with his bare hands. Boney was a hero, and for his good deeds the church took up a collection and bought his freedom. From that day forward, Boney stayed near the church as if he were charged with protecting it, until his death many years later. Many people still claim to see his spirit at St. Philip's, saying that the old slave's devotion to the church has survived the grave. Visions of Boney dancing in her head, Sally ventured deeper and deeper into the pitch-black graveyard, holding the cane in front of her like a cudgel. Her heart began to pound harder. She rounded the backside of the church. Everything still dripped from the recent rain, and the sounds of water trickling seemed to be deafening to Sally. Even if there are ghosts, old Boney wouldn't hurt me, Sally reasoned. He's nice. But her words did nothing to ease her growing apprehension. 
It was much darker here and something moved in the inky blackness within the cemetery. Hello? If it is you, Thomas, I am not afraid, she called out. I know you are there. Her only answer was a wet rustling sound which seemed to be getting closer. Sally stepped off of the path, still determined to complete her mission, despite her faltering resolve. She ran into a row of tombstones, their cold marble biting into her shins. Tears, both from the pain and her growing terror, welled in her eyes. Finally, she neared her goal. She dashed forward, found the specified tomb, and rammed the cane down into the soft, damp earth with both hands. She then turned to dash back to the safety of the house and her friends. She could picture nothing but Boney's long fingers reaching out of the dripping blackness, ready to drag her away from the light forever. Suddenly, something grabbed the hem of her dress. She tugged feebly, but the iron grip held her captive. Some horrible thing had her in its clutches. She tried to scream in terror, but no sound could escape her throat. She sank to the ground, arms outstretched towards her house in the distance. After an hour, her friends were forced to look for Sally. Several of them insisted that they would find that stubborn girl sitting on the tombstone, laughing where she would chastise them for believing in ghosts and phantoms. Armed with lanterns, they did indeed find her at the tombstone, within the burial ground at St. Philip's, but she was in no condition to be critical of anyone, not then or ever again. Sally had literally been scared to death. She had driven that cane down through the hem of her own skirt, pinning herself in place. Believing that something had grabbed her, she expired at that very spot. Many Charlestonians will tell you to be cautious of poking fun of people's ghost stories because sometimes trying to disprove the story might just cause you to be scared to death. Local storytellers even claim that on the darkest of nights, the ghost of a little girl is sometimes seen in the cemetery holding a cane as she walks deeper and deeper in the gloom. The stories of Boney and the church he saved from ruin are completely true. According to a Charleston News and Courier article which appeared on June 6, 1921, read, In 1796, the steeple of St. Philip's was afire and was saved only by a courageous slave who climbed up and tore off the burning shingles. For the signal service, he was given his freedom. The Hound of Goshen in the old days before the Civil War, many wealthy Charleston planters had homes in the mountains of South and North Carolina where they could escape the humid heat and malaria that summer months brought to the Low Country. The main stagecoach route was called the Old Buncombe Road, which roughly parallels Interstate 26 on today's map. In Union County, near the Newberry County line, was a small village called Goshen Township on the Old Buncombe Road. Around 1850, a peddler and his faithful dog passed through the settlement about the time a gruesome murder had occurred. Being a stranger, the peddler had no one to stand up for his integrity, and after a hasty trial, he was publicly hanged. His poor white hound stayed beside his master during the hanging, and for three days after the dead man was buried, the dog stayed at the spot and howled pitifully. The good town folk put an end to this by stoning the poor animal to death. It wasn't very long until travelers along the old road began reporting a large white dog which lurched at their horses and which was very white and frightening in appearance. Those brave enough slashed at the dog with their buggy whips, but the whip passed through the apparition. 
the dog would follow the frightened passengers until it reached a certain cemetery, then was seen to leap through the locked gates. A Dr. Douglas was a country physician whose home was on the old road, and until his death maintained that the ghost dog often accompanied him on his rounds. He was never afraid of the ghost and considered it to be a friend. By 1936, the road had been paved, and automobiles had replaced the horse and buggy, but the dog was still reportedly seen by those in cars, on horseback, and folks out for an evening stroll. One night in 1936, a young man was frightened almost to death by the dog and barely reached his doctor's house before passing out. The dog was reported in the late 1970s. Old lady, whose house faced the old road, now seldom used, was sitting on her front porch. She saw a large white dog come into her yard, increase in size, and leap towards her. She fainted dead away, but was able to recount her story when she recovered. The last reported sighting was in 1998, so the dog still roams the road. Footnote, a deathbed confession by an old man in the 1880s proved the innocence of the peddler. The Great Lady of Lausanne The ancestors of the de Sassours lived in France during the terrible times of strife between the Huguenots and the Catholics. The family consisted of father, mother, two sons, and a daughter, Eloise. The father was confirmed Romanist, but the others, especially the two sons, Raoul and Jules, clung to the Huguenot faith. One day, the father, returning home unexpectedly, found Eloise in company of a young Huguenot, whom he deemed especially objectionable. Seized with fury, he would have slain the young man with his dagger had not Eloise thrown herself before him. Though the youth was permitted to depart, the father, enraged, confined Eloise in a strict convent, and despite her gentle spirit, she called down the curse of heaven on him. Eloise languished and died in the prison-like place within the year, and the mother, bitterly reproaching the father for his cruelty, followed her. The father remorse sought surcease and suicide by plunging his dagger into his chest, but he remained alive long enough for the arrival of Raoul and Jews, whom he failed to recognize. Following the death of their father, Raoul and Jules were seated one night before a fire discussing family affairs when a gray-clad figure glided into the room. Amazed, they recognized their sister who seemed to attempt to speak, but failing, faded from view with an expression of grief. When Raoul retired to his room, he was further astonished to find the habit of a monk on the floor. The next day, a massacre of Huguenots started. Barol, disguising himself in the monk's robes, escaped the fate of his brother at the hands of the rioters. After many adventures, Raoul reached America. A son came to Camden and built Lausanne, but the Grey Lady accompanied him and appears at Lausanne from time to time when tragedy forebodes, or so it is said. The Grey Lady has appeared to numerous family members over the years, most often when danger or death are close by, when the family lost its estate, the ghost started frightening the new residents and now said to walk the streets of Camden as well. She is often reported at the court inn and on the roads nearby. The old inn has been torn down, but at one time it was known as Lausanne, the Desaran family estate. The Haunted Avenue this story takes place at the first Belvedere plantation, which was built beside the Cooper River, 
three miles from Charleston in March of 1796. The beautiful plantation was owned by Colonel Thomas Schubrick. He had married Mary Branford in Charleston on April 9, 1778, and was proud to present to her a property of great wealth and importance. The story is a tale of how a young slave girl, Clarissa, who served Mrs. Schubrick, was convinced by the Schubrick's gardener, an immigrant from England, Timothy Wales, to steal jewels from her mistress with a promise they would run off together. After Clarissa gave him the jewels, he pushed her aside and fled alone, promising to return for her. Frightened, she returned to the house and set it afire. Suspicion pointed towards her, and she broke down, confessed, and was hanged. The story goes that although Belvedere was rebuilt, it's no longer standing, but they say that the ghost of Clarissa still walks the lonely avenue, awaiting her English gardener, who never returned. The ghost of Clarissa is also thought to be the ghost sighted at the Admiral's house at Charleston Naval Base, which is seen standing near a clump of old trees along the river. The base closed in 1996 and the house stood empty for 20 years. It is now presently under renovations. The Man Who Came Back This story takes place during the Revolutionary War when the British took Charlestown in 1780. The British violated the agreement of allowing the garrisoned American soldiers to return to their homes as prisoners on parole. The man to whom the story refers is Revolutionary War hero Colonel Isaac Hayne. He had retired to his plantation in St. Paul's Parish, where his family had been stricken with smallpox. One child had died, two were very ill, and his wife's life hung in the balance. In the midst of all this despair, Colonel Hayne was summoned and forced to go to Charleston to report to the British and to answer the query, Will you or will you not become the subject of His Majesty? Under the stress he signed because he was told that he never would be asked to draw arms against his country. He was allowed to return home to his dying wife. After her death, the British ordered him to join their army with threats of imprisonment unless he agreed. He was also being asked by Charleston patriots to become their leader. He agreed. Not long after, he was captured in an engagement and was taken prisoner in Charlestown. He was tried for treason, declared guilty, and was condemned to be executed. A huge protest occurred for his release, but the British was bound to set Colonel Hayne as an example. The execution day dawned and Colonel Hayne, accompanied by some friends, walked through the streets toward his end. Mrs. Perrano, his sister-in-law, cried out to him, Return to us, return to us. I will, he said, if I can. He was hanged to his death a few minutes later. The story goes that his ghost returned for almost a hundred years to the beginning of the Civil War. The Legend of Fenwick Castle This story takes place at Fenwick Hall Plantation built on Johns Island. Its owner was Edward Fenwick, a loyalist and at the onset of the revolution fled to New York where he died in 1775. He built this huge mansion to resemble their family castle in England where the title of Lord Ripon came to him. He was known in the area for his import of fine English thoroughbred horses. This story is about his 17-year-old daughter, Anne Fenwick, and her love for the horses and for the groomer, Tony. Annie went to ask permission from her father to marry Tony, but Lord Ripon flatly refused. She tried again several weeks later, but met the same tone. 
Anne and Tony decided to elope. So they chose a night, made their way to the marshes of the Ashley River, only to discover there were no boats in sight. They would have to wait till dawn. They found an abandoned cabin where they decided to wait out the night. With the dawn came their discovery by Lord Ribbon and his men. Upon the return to Fenwick, Anne told her father that she was Tony's wife since the day before when Reverend Mr. Marshall had married them. Lord Ripon, filled with anger, ordered that Tony be placed atop a horse and a rope placed around his neck. He then placed a whip into Anne's hands and forced her to strike the horse. Upon seeing her husband swaying from the big oak tree, she screamed his name and then collapsed. She was carried into the mansion and upon reviving, she called for Tony. No one was able to convince her of the terrible event that had taken place. The years passed with Anne still calling out for Tony. Her search continued until her death, or did it. The story goes that Anne's footsteps can still be heard as she passes up and down the hallway of Fenwick Castle, always followed by the mournful cries of Tony, Tony, Tony. Fenwick Castle was occupied by Edward Fenwick and his ancestors until the Civil War. The house with the race course and gardens fell prey to neglect. For many years it remained a haunted ruin feared and shunned by all. In the late 1950 to early 1960s, Fenwick Hall was fully restored and is now one of the showplaces of the Low Country. The Fateful Handkerchief Why would a young couple marry and then never spend one night together? For as long as Ruth could remember, she had been in love with the handsome Francis Simmons. During the summer of 1796, Francis hosted an oyster roast at his plantation on John's Island. It was there that Ruth had introduced him to her closest friend, Sabina Smith, not realizing that Francis was to fall in love with her instead. As the weeks passed, Ruth knew that she had to do something. Determined not to give up so easily, she told Francis that Sabina and Dick Johnston were to announce their engagement soon. Heartbroken, he stepped aside. One day as Francis was calling on Ruth, he showed her a handkerchief that his favorite departed sister Anne had embroidered with his initials. He had said, Wouldn't you like to have such beautiful initials? The next day Rollins Lowndes sent for Francis to speak of the proposal to his daughter. Francis, thinking that Sabina was lost to him forever, went along with it. The day before the wedding, as Francis was walking down Church Street, he passed the Smith house just as Sabina was walking up from the garden. During their chance meeting, they both learned the heart-wrenching truth. Sabina had told him that she never had any intentions on marrying Dick Johnston. Only then did Francis know he had been conned. He was taught at an early age by his mother that a man's word was his honor, and a woman's name must never pass his lips except in respect. Honor was more important than life. Even though he had been tricked into marriage by a woman he did not love, he was still honor-bound to go through with it. That day, Sabina told Francis that she would never marry. Francis swore that Ruth would only bear the title of his wife legally. On November 15, 1796, in Charlestown, at the home of the bride's father, Francis Simmons and Sarah Ruth Rawlings Lowndes changed wedding vows. After the wedding, the bride and groom went to their new town home at 131 Tad Street, which was given by Rollins Lowndes to his daughter. Upon arrival, Francis escorted 
Ruth to the entrance, then bid her good night. He never lived at 131 Tad. Instead, he lived at his plantation on Johns Island until he purchased the property at 14 Lagar Street. He tore down the existing structure and built Brick House, where he died 20 years after his marriage to Ruth. Francis made good on his promise to Sabina, for Ruth was never truly his wife. The story goes that even though there is no house now at 131 Tad Street, there are still handsome brick columns that mark the entrance to a long, narrow alley, and it's here that in the late hours of the night, when Charleston is asleep, one can hear the pounding of horses' hooves and the rumbling of wheels as though a coach is passing in the alley. Old-timers say that it is only Ruth Simmons driving to her empty marriage bed. Sabina Smith never married, and she died before Francis. Francis was a young boy when, during the war, Lord Rawdon sent for his father to go to Charlestown, where he was thrown in prison and eventually died. His mother struggled for several years after the war to grow crops, but rice was their blessing. They eventually made enough to live wealthy. The will of Francis Simmons states that all his possessions be left to nieces, nephews, and friends. He left nothing to his wife, Ruth. Francis' house at 14 Lagar Street, the brick house, can still be seen in Charleston. Medway's Ghost The site is a place of two hauntings. Medway, located two miles above Goose Creek, is approached by a driveway lined with massive oaks, streaming with heavy moss. It is the oldest house of record in the state. It was built of brick made and dried in the site in 1686, 16 years after the Charlestown colony was settled. It was built by a Dutchman, Jan van Arsens, Signor de Wordhout, for his beautiful wife, Sabina de Vignon. Jan did not live long enough to enjoy his wife nor home. His widow married Landgrave Thomas Smith, who served as governor of the Carolinas. Neither marriage produced any children for Sabina. Landgrave Thomas Smith died at the age of 46 and was buried at Medway. His grave is marked by a heavy slab. There is no trace of the grave of Van Arsens. The story goes Jan appears in the south side upstairs bedroom in the late evening hour, seated by the fireplace, smoking a pipe. And downstairs there is another ghostly visitor, a beautiful young girl whose heart was broken as she stood at the north window, waiting on her handsome young husband's return. Medway was a gathering of many hunts. During one of the gatherings of deer hunters and their wives included a newlywed couple very much in love. The new bride was reluctant to let her husband go. She begged him to stay with her. He assured her he would be fine. His bride watched him go with a terrible feeling of disaster. She took no part in the laughter and talk with the other wives. She was distracted and restless. For hours, she continually went to the north window to look out towards the woods. She stared through the small panes until dusk began to fall. Eventually, the hunters returned with two carrying a stretcher. The girl sought frantically for the face she loved. Only when the stretcher was placed at her feet did she see Fliss' form lay there. They took her home where she died shortly afterward. They say she died of a broken heart. The story goes that the years since her death she has haunted the spot where she actually died at the sight of a face on a stretcher at Medway. Night after night she returns to the place of her anguish to wait on her beloved husband. Some say she stands in the north window to gaze out through the small panes. There is only a rustling of her gown as she waits, like a deer moving a branch in the forest. 
Note, marriage records show that Thomas Smith and Sabina de Vignon married on March 22nd of 1675 in Charlestown. At the time of Landgrave Thomas Smith's death, he had two sons still surviving by a previous marriage. The Girl Who Was Buried Alive This part of Edisto Island is as gloomy today as it must have been in 1850. Huge oaks with pendulous masses of Spanish moss looping from limb to limb hover over the land and strange things happen here. Once, a white stallion jumped high into the air only to be caught in the fork of a huge oak tree. Every effort to free the animal failed. It was either mercifully put out of its misery by some soft-hearted soul or it was left here to die upon its will. For many years, people came to view the skeletal remains of the once beautiful stallion now in the huge oak. The Adisto Presbyterian Church was designed and built in the early 1830s by James Curtis, a Charleston architect. It looks today much as it did then. The graveyard that surrounds the church on three sides dates back to the 18th century, and the names on the grave markers are evidence of prominent South Carolina families who have been buried there, many having died of diphtheria. The names including Eddings, Mickle, Seabrook, LaRoche, Hopkinson, Lagar, and Whaley. Diphtheria was a common disease during the 1800s. The first effective antitoxin was not developed until 1890. This deadly, highly contagious disease spread throughout the barrier islands of South Carolina in 1850. In July 1850, a young girl, while visiting the home of a planter family on Adisto Island, awoke feeling ill. When the doctor saw the telltale yellowish-gray patch that was upon her neck, he knew it would not be long before the beautiful young lady drew her last breath. Not long, the girl fell into a coma so deep that word mistakenly came from the physician that she had died. As there were no artificial preservation of dead bodies on Adisto Island before the Civil War, it was a practice to bury the dead as soon as possible after their demise. So word was sent to neighboring plantations that the girl's funeral would be held that very afternoon. As the people of Adisto Island prepared to attend the funeral and burial of the girl, loving hands prepared her body and dressed her in the pink dress that had been her favorite. After the funeral was held in the sanctuary, the body was placed in a marble mausoleum behind the church under a canopy of oaks and pines. The tomb door was a broad, flat, thick piece of marble hinged on one side. It was closed and locked. In the amber glaze of the afternoon, the mourners left the cemetery, walking among the marble forms of cherubs, urns, and other symbols of eternal sleep. Just before leaving the burial ground, some turned for one last glance at the mausoleum with the family name, J.B. Lagar, carved above the door. The sepulchre lacked columns, but it could have doubled for a tiny Greek temple. Some 15 years later, one of the men of the Lagar family was killed in an accident. His body was prepared for burial and taken to the church, where his funeral was held. When the heavy door to the family mausoleum was opened so that the remains of his body could be interred there to the horror of the members of the family, was a skeletal frame of the young girl who had been buried earlier. From the position of her remains, it was clear that she had been buried alive, and at the time of her actual death, she had been trying to escape from the mausoleum. The family felt the horror the young girl must have felt when she came out of her coma and realized that she was trapped, and the panic that must have driven her to try, without hope, to escape. The man was entombed as were the skeletal remains of the young girl. It was several weeks before any of the family returned to the mausoleum. 
When they did, they found the door to the vault standing open. The door was closed again and fastened in such a way that it seemed impossible that it could ever be opened again. However, in a few weeks, an elder of the church discovered the door standing open again. For more than a hundred years, it was impossible to keep the doors to the mausoleum closed. About thirty years before, the door was once again attached in such a way that it was concluded it would be impossible for it to be opened except with certain heavy equipment. But a few days later, the door was found not only open, but it had been removed from its hinges and lying on the ground. Once more, it was replaced and with heavy chains locked into place. Yet still, it was found open. Today, vines grow in the cracks of the marble mausoleum, spider webs and wasp nests festoon the doorframe, and the stubborn marble door lies broken into three pieces on the grounds at the vault entrance. The story goes that word spread throughout the area that the spirit of the young girl who had been buried alive would not allow the door to remain closed so that no one else could ever be buried in the tomb as she had been when she was still alive. The Ghost of Eddingston Beach In the years prior to the Civil War when Edisto Island planters became millionaires from the production of Sea Island cotton, they built and maintained beach houses on Eddingston Beach across a tidal creek from Edisto Island. Eddingston Beach had a wide sandy beach where conchs, whelks, cockles, and other fabulous seashells washed up with each tide. The houses of the planters faced the sea and they had all the same architecture. They were all two stories, had a brick chimney on each end, many windows, and a house-length porch on the beach side. It was during this time that Mary Clark, a daughter of one of the wealthy planters, became engaged to a Captain Fickling. The engagement was no surprise to Adisto Islanders, for both Mary and her fiancé were descendants of Old Island families, and they had been childhood sweethearts. So no expense was spared as plans for the wedding were made. Finally, the wedding day was at hand, and the bride on the arm of her father walked under a canopy of native vegetation which included green myrtle branches and water spider orchids as she made her way down the aisle of St. Stephen's Church. When the bride and groom were pronounced man and wife, they left the church stood in the churchyard to receive the guests as they exited the sanctuary of St. Stephen's. They invited their guests to a feast that was then being spread on long tables set up on the beach. Plantation cooks had been working all night and all that day on the platters of food. The cooks used recipes that had been handed down for generations. The wedding was the talk of the island. Four weeks after the wedding, the groom set sail for the West Indies, and the bride began to look forward to his return, almost before his ship was out of sight. It was October, and most of the planter families were still in residence in their beach homes. It was customary not to leave until the first frost in the fall season. Each evening, just before sunset, Mary Fickling walked down to the water's edge. She looked out over the cold water and thought of her husband, far from home. On the evening of October 12th, the rolls and smells of the sea began to build, and Mary began to worry about her husband. She knew that his return was overdue, and if an October hurricane was churning the sea, his ship could be involved. There were no warnings for such storms then, but somewhere deep inside her she felt that a dreadful hurricane was indeed coming. When she returned home, she found others were also worried about a hurricane. Someone said that the causeway to the mainland was already flooded and any crossing was out of the question. Within minutes, the hurricane hit Eddingsville. 
The house in which Mary was staying trembled and swayed and the structure started to give way. Other members of her family sat scared and quietly prayed and they listened. First there was great sucking of air and then there was total darkness as seawater washed into the house. For Mary and others it was a long night of terror as they struggled to stay alive. With morning brought an eerie calm and with the rise of the sun it brought a scene that would never be forgotten. Trees were lying everywhere. Some beach houses lay askew with porches, chimneys, or windows washed away. Heavy pieces of furniture, chairs, and sofas were scattered along the beach. As Mary was looking over the beach in disbelief, she spotted a dark, lumpy form floating in the sea. As she stood compelled to watch this form, as it washed closer towards the shore, she saw that it was the form of a man. She ran into the water, and as the form got closer to her, she recognized the body of her husband. With a shuddering cry, she got down onto the water and with tears streaming from her eyes, embraced his lifeless body in her arms. Mary was to learn later that his ship was indeed in the middle of the hurricane and that his ship and all hands were lost at sea. There are no beach houses now where Eddingsville is located and no reminders of the days when this place was a fabulous resort. Over the decades, this beach has been tormented by devilish hurricanes and unusually high tides. What remains today is no more than a sliver of sandy beach adjacent to a marsh. The story goes that on moonlit nights a young girl can be seen running into the waves and pulling the form of a man up on its shore. This is the ghost of Eddingston Beach.